Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Well, I'm getting prepared. It's been a few days. Okay, I've got everything together back here in the hosting chair for the program. Thank you for being with us. And thank you, Ramya Muthan, for being with us today. But holding down the fort Friday, Monday with Margaret Weldon. Thank you kindly. Yes, I got to announce the snow in Toronto, right? I just called it right in and said, yep, it's going to be snowing. And then you came in and I guess now it's just normal that it's snowing. Um, I think so. And I think yeah. right now what people have to accept is, okay, you got enough of that nice weather, colder weather, nice weather. The tease, a tease yeah, is over. it's over. Uh-huh. It's over. Once it um, snows, it's pretty much, yeah. When will you start like your over. winter events? I know you do the skiing. Are you you going to do some of that? You know how they get the rinks going. If Again, skating, touch wood yeah. for people. The skating, mm-hmm. if it holds up and we keep the, the cool enough temperatures to get some good, nice ice. Uh, when will you start that? Will you do a Christmas skate? Yeah. No, definitely by December we're we're already starting to skate if it's permittable. And skiing officially with the Ski Hawk starts in January. So that's not till after. And actually that's a great time for us because by then it starts feeling long. The winter right. really starts yep. feeling long. So I and appreciate you need something. that we started. Yeah. But you know, one activity that's already started is the hot cocoa and marshmallows. Oh, I'm sure. That oh, that one ago. always, that's why you need the skiing <laughs> after Christmas. Um, exactly. We were talking last week on the show about roller skating and I never did ask, is that something you would do, have done? I, I don't think you've ex- explored that. I don't mean in line. I mean, actual the old roller skating we were talking about. The nostalgia. Yeah, I feel like I did, but we called it rollerblading, but with the, the wheels, right? But rollerblading's we were... different, though. Oh, okay, then never mind. No, I haven't. I've only done rollerblading. Okay. Which is what the 90s thing was into the 2000s. Yes. Uh, roller skating has been around forever, but the four wheels as opposed to the inline skating, which is, is the rollerblading, which I, okay, that's I never did. Been, yeah. I was going to, I was looking to buy pairs, but I've always been a big roller skating fan, um, been that person that's enjoyed and, and done it, as I was saying on the show last week, since I was a kid. So interesting. I think fun. I love seeing it come back. It's that thing that comes back, goes away a little bit, comes back and, and mm-hmm. is, is doing the resurgence once again. Let's take a look, folks. See what we have today on Kelly and Company for you. On our wellness chat, Francis Wong has tips for us, folks. For a smoother recovery from the seasonal colds and flus that are out there. It's happening. It's, it's, it's around the time now. Dr. Larissa Moniz, a director of research and mission programs at Fighting Blindness Canada, is joining us to discuss their second annual Eye on the Cure Vision Research Competition Show. And AMI Content Development Specialist Jim Crisco joins us on our Voices segment today. We're going to discuss his uh, passion for video editing, comedy and camping in the Rockies. Wow, what a variety. We'll talk to him in hour two on our voices segment. So the federal auditor, auditor the federal auditor general, if I say it slow enough, it comes out sounding almost right. Uh, of course, government departments have not always been effectively implemented a proper storage of uh, digital information and assets. Karen Hogan says requirements have not always clear for putting data data in the cloud. 
As cyber attacks everywhere are becoming more frequent and sophisticated, gaps in controls increase the risk of security breaches. Hogan is urging the government to take immediate action to strengthen how it prevents, detects, and responds to cyber attacks. So when I settle back here, Ramya, and I think about this, we hear a lot about these cyber attacks. We hear a lot of uh, ransom attacks that are, are, are holding up cities, towns, hospitals, schools, whatever it might be, to where somebody's got to pay for information, personal information, to be released. And these are the attacks that are going on. And we're wondering, how come they're paying? How come this is happening? And I guess a lot of time, as much as we've always been warned, always known this stuff was going to happen as more and more is placed in in, in the cloud or in, in positions of possibly being broken into, accessed, and stolen. Um, but as Canada often does, we wait until it starts happening and the cries for, hey, my privacy, hey, my company, start out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, all of these different things that we discuss, because they are different, right? Like these security breaches are different from our privacy concerns when it comes to location or advertisement or passwords and passcodes. Like all these different things are different. But at the end of the day, they feel very similar, Kells, because that's what we're we're worried about. We're worried about our um, e-information, our yeah. electronic information, and the security of our devices or devices or cloud storage that is holding that information for us. And so there's not much, well, I feel, that we can do on an individual basis about big things like this, right? There, there has to be action um, done from the people taking care of these servers to assure us that our information is okay. It's like if I put my money in the bank and then the bank says, sorry, guys, like you lost all your money. Well, you got to take some accountability for that. Yep. Now, I think the fearful part of it is banks and so on, they're able to do what they can do to, to, to take that responsibility. Where it gets scary is hospitals, and we don't know how far that'll go. Okay, stealing yes. somebody's information, all right. But what if you're able to get in there and part of your, your attack takes out vital resources for surgeries and things like that yes. or or shuts something down that really spoils a bunch of medication that's needed that can't be you know recovered there are so many different things that these attacks are going to take the look at transit and i think that when we stop and say well what are you doing and i can't, i don't want to say that because I don't know what they're doing. They're not about to come out and tell us, well, here's all the things we do and tell the hackers, oh, okay, so you are that far advanced at warding, thwarting us. Okay, or or that's what you're doing. Well, we'll do this. So it's, it's a kind of scary thing, but it definitely is something we all need to be a part of and voicing our opinions and saying this is kind of scary stuff. Uh, we are going to be talking about sickness on the program today and some of the things we can do. The Public Health Agency of Canada says we are officially in a flu epidemic at this point. The declaration comes uh, comes as the positivity rate uh, for flu tests nearly doubled between the last week of October and the first week of November. The Public Health Agency's Flu Watch report says a flu epidemic is usually declared when the flu test positivity rate climbs above 5%. Between Halloween and November 5th, that rate leaped from 6 to nearly 12%, with the agency saying cases were reported in eight provinces from Alberta eastward and flu levels were even higher than would have been normal in pre-pandemic years. 
The healthcare system is facing a triple threat of respiratory viruses, including COVID-19, and higher than normal levels of influenza and respiratory syncytial virus. Beth Layton, the Canadian Press. So we hear uh, the different premiers talk about it, the prime minister. We hear people around the world, in well, primarily this part of the world, as we move into winter and things get more bottled up and closed up, Ramya. But the thing to think about is what are we going to do? How are we going to hit this? We're hearing schools talked about because the kids, the best resource to transmit that stuff, as a matter of fact, um, we're in that situation where now the suggestions are out there while keeping in mind people have taken enough as as it's been. So we will get into this a little bit with Francis Wong here on the program. So um, on Ask a Vet, Dr. Danielle Johnkind is going to take us on a historical tour in honor of the Ontario Veterinarian College uh, and its birthday as we look back in history. We'll be right back. split shows, ladies and gentlemen. Segment one. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Ramya. Appreciate it. But now, Ramya and I are back here live to take you through the rest of the program. Hang on here. Just going to touch some wood and make sure that that technical uh, stuff is all waved aside. And away we go. But first, let's start off with uh, Catch the Pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. This week, Joita is going to be speaking to uh, disability activist and lawyer David Leposky about what needs to be improved in Bill C-22, which proposes the creation of the Canada Disability Benefit. That's the Pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time on AMI-audio, also available on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube. As mentioned off the top here of the segment, I'm Kelly McDonald with Ramya Muthan. Well, on Tuesdays, we like to check in with our veterinarian, Dr. Danielle Donkind, and she joins us for Ask a Vet. And this year, it marks a special anniversary for the Ontario Veterinary College. It's now been open for over, well, for 100 years. So they're celebrating something special here at its current location at the University of Guelph. And what do we know about the history of veterinary medicine in Canada? How did it come to be the profession that we know it to be today? Dr. Danielle is going to take us on a bit of a historical tour in honor of the Veterinary College's special anniversary. Danielle, welcome back. Thanks for this. I'm very excited to talk uh, about the history of vet medicine in Canada. Too actually, it was a lot more um, exciting, sort of, than I thought it was going to be. So okay, be <laughs> there you go. Thirteen-minute history lesson here. Let's start with what we know about the earliest days of vet medicine in Canada. Well, you know, ironically, the history of the profession is not something they teach us about in vet school, but I was actually able to find some historical information on the websites for uh, the College of Veterinarians of Ontario and for the Guelph Historical Society. Um, So I guess somewhere around the mid-1800s, Queen Victoria and Britain had approved the creation of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, and, you know, veterinary organizations were starting to kind of pop up in the U.S., 
And uh, there was sort of an impetus for, you know, getting this sort of organizations going in Canada because I guess their, uh, the railways and the steamship travel was bringing a lot of European diseases to the United States. And by the 1860s, you know, that was causing a lot of livestock losses across the U.S., and there were concerns that the same thing could happen in Canada. And, of course, at that time, there was no training program in place to teach people the principles of disease or how to be veterinarians. So the first veterinary school in Canada was called the Upper Canada Veterinary School, and it was privately owned and established in Toronto um, by a man uh, named Andrew Smith, who was its first teacher. So he began teaching in 1862, which, holy cow, that's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Um, The first class of officially trained Canadian vets graduated in 1866, and there were three of them. (laughs) That's it. Um, The name of the school is eventually changed to the Ontario Veterinary College, and that makes it the oldest veterinary school in North America. Wow. So... Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a very, very old, um, old institution, really. And in 1871, the law was amended um, so that nobody could claim to be a veterinary surgeon unless they had been trained by a veterinary school. And then in 1874, 27 vets met in Toronto and... Um, formed the organization that would eventually become the College of Veterinarians of Ontario, and their legal mandate was to oversee the licensing and governance of professional veterinarians, and that's something they still do today. So lots of history there. Wow, really cool history. And I would like to say some forethinking ahead, be knowing, okay, this is what's happening as as we develop as a, as a land and a country. Uh, we need to take care of this stuff now and get ahead of it with so many people coming here and livestock. And Danielle Johnkind, that would have been back to dealing with all sorts of animals, big and small for you. Yeah, eventually, you know. Exactly. Um. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I just think about your stories about veterinarian work and dealing with the larger animals. So why did they end up moving the Ontario Veterinary College to Guelph from Toronto? Well, actually, the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture purchased um, the Ontario Veterinary College, the OVC, from Dr. Smith in 1908. And they upgraded the facilities, which were originally at the University of Toronto in 1915. But there was a bit of a revolution occurring in the animal industry, and that was because of the loss of the horse as a method of transportation. So cars were becoming mainstream, especially in the city, And the original OVC focused mainly on equine medicine and not on food animal medicine. And the Ministry of Agriculture wanted to change that. Uh, Guelph was a location that was more connected, of course, with the rural community and the rural farms. And the Ontario Agricultural College that was also owned by the Ministry of Agriculture was located there too. So it was felt that collaboration between the two disciplines would be a good idea and would kind of shift the focus of veterinary training more um, toward food animal. So the new location of the Ontario Veterinary College opened officially on December 12, 1922. So we're, you know, just shy of 100 years. Like, you know, it's going to be pretty close. And it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Danielle, what about other veterinary schools in the rest of Canada? We know today Canada has a total of five veterinary colleges. Uh, While OVC is the oldest one in North America, the next oldest in Canada is the one in St. Hyacinth in Quebec. 
Um, this is the only veterinary college in Canada that conducts veterinary education in the French language. Um, and it moved to its current location in 1947. Uh, the Western College of Vet Medicine opened in Saskatchewan in 1963. And then the Atlantic Veterinary College in PEI opened in 1983. Uh, the most recent one opened at the University of Calgary in 2008. So, you know, we really don't have that many veterinary schools in Canada and none at all in the province of British Columbia. So, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, quite a lot of people are surprised about that, to be honest. It's interesting as we look at the timing, as, as they went over things right there, it's staggering to think of some of the changes in both veterinary education and the veterinary profession in the past 100 years. So what were you able to find out about that? Well, you know, some facts, you know, that, that seem kind of hard to believe in the modern day, honestly, you know. Um, for example, in 1922, student tuition to study at the Ontario Veterinary College was $85. <laughs> And in 2022, it's $10,758, so a big difference there. Um, another unbelievable thing for me to see were, were um, pictures of the original OVC building when it was opened. So it looks rather like an Ivy League building built in the middle of a farm field with a circular driveway out front. And at that time, there was literally nothing around it but, but fields, a barn, and a few houses clustered along College Avenue. And, you know, that original building still stands at the corner of College Avenue and Gordon Street in Guelph today. Um, when I was there at the school, I'm not sure what's in there now, but it held the library, you know, the OVC library, um, among other things. Um, but, of course, in the last century, a lot of other buildings have been added to expand the facilities into those spaces where those fields used to be. And I know that a lot of them are connected to the original building from when I was a student there. Um, and, of course, the facilities have been extensively renovated and changed even since I graduated. I won't tell you how long ago that was. <laughs> not in the 1800s. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Not quite that long ago. <laughs> but uh, in 1922, 18 students graduated from the OVC when it left Toronto, and a century later, there are 117 graduates listed. Um, another interesting fact is that the law added companion animals to the Veterinary Practice Act in 1931. So we went from oh. a professional, a profession primarily concerned with horses to adding farm animals and then adding companion animals last under the umbrella of veterinary medicine. And, you know, I remember being a student at OVC, and there's a collection of museum artifacts from the early days of profession at the school. And often they would have some of these out on display in the original building. And as students, of course, on our way to class or the library, we'd pass by these old instruments, and I would think, oh, my gosh, we've come such a long way. <laughs> they, yeah. they always look kind of barbaric to me. But, you know, the last thing that, of course, didn't really surprise me was the change in the demographics of the veterinary profession. So, of course, when veterinary medicine first became a profession, it was a male-dominated profession. Wow. So much has changed and developed, you know, since the inception of, and there's a, a vast development. Is vet medicine still a male-dominated profession? Uh, well, you know, there's a paper published um, by Kevin Whitger from U of T and Elizabeth Stone from OVC, and they looked at the history of women in vet medicine in Ontario anyway. And uh, the first female vet graduated from OVC in 1938. But, of course, uh, female vets were the exception rather than the rule back then. 
uh, most women faced a lot of discrimination getting into vet school and were actively discouraged from applying back in those days. But by the 1970s and 80s, that was beginning to change. And by 2003, there are reports that about 80% of graduates were female by then. Um, currently, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association um, that released veterinary stats in 2021, um, at that time, there were 15,118 vets in Canada, and 62% of them identified as female. So it seems like the vet industry is making great strides in this gender equality. And while that's true in one sense, it was interesting to note that um, the AVMA down in the States um, published statistics in 2018, and at that time, 59.3% of practice owners were male, and only 29.3% were female. Um, they also reported in 2013 that there was still a significant pay gap between males and females in the mm. vet profession. So pretty much just like every other profession out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because, I mean, I was all set to say to you until you said that last part. I wonder if it goes up and down if you, you know, over the course of, I, I mean, I know numbers do, but I wonder if there's been a period of time where even, you know, that number was higher, where the female you know number is higher. Uh, so I, I always wonder that because to me, it's always seemed um, as that opening open profession. So really interesting. But what about diversity and equity uh, and inclusion uh, when it comes to veterinarian medicine? How has that changed over the last century? Well, for the vast majority of the history of the vet profession in Canada, veterinarians have been overwhelmingly male and white. Um, current stats on um, equity, diversity, inclusion in the vet profession in Canada are really difficult, if not impossible, to find. Um, from my own personal experiences, the majority of vets I have met don't represent an overwhelmingly diverse population of ethnicities in any respect. Um, I have met people of Asian and South Asian descent in the vet profession here in Ontario, but very few people from other ethnicities. Um, even when I look at pictures of researchers and vets in veterinary publications, the majority of them, you know, in those pictures are clearly white. Um, and looking into this further, I was able to find some stats from the U.S. And it was clear from those that the applicants to veterinary schools in the U.S. don't reflect the diversity of their population either. Um, so clearly, you know, the vet profession has a lot more work to do in that area. Um, the good news, though, is that OVC seems to be doing just that. You know, according to their college publication, The Crest, um, they just finished a survey of staff, students, and alumni in early 2022, and they're using that information to plan their next steps. So they already have a number of initiatives in place, including educating high school students about the profession to encourage BIPOC students to apply. Um, they're reviewing their admissions procedures to ensure fair access, and they're um, implementing equity, diversity, and inclusion training for the whole UVC community, and have added a number of scholarships to help BIPOC students overcome financial barriers to studying. So hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years, we'll start to see those efforts pay off. Well, there's, I like you said, I mean, I'm curious about how much uh, more there will be of the representation because it's going to be pretty interesting to get that, right? Especially with the picture that you've already painted on how um, much change there has been with vet medicine and uh, mm -hmm. the talk of it. So appreciate the information, Danielle. I'm looking forward to ne next week as well because we have one of these feel-good stories about a zoo 
in New York State that got an unexpected surprise from uh, their Asian elephants. Curious about that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was a really, really great story. <laughs> okay. Well, we're looking forward to you sharing it with us. Okay. Have a good week. Thank you. You too. Dr. Danielle Jonkine joining us for Ask a Veterinarian, and that's every Tuesday here on the show. Coming up in a couple of moments here on the program, on our wellness chat, Francis Wong shares tips for a smoother recovery from the seasonal flu and cold. And we're talking a lot about that these days, so stand by. We'll get into it some more and enjoy those tips after this. always wonderful to have you listening in wherever you are around the world. Maybe you're listening over there at AMI.ca, right from the website. You can uh, listen to the feed of AMI-audio there. Well, then again, I I say that, uh, and I'm not jesting either, folks, in case you go over and say, where the heck is it? We think all technical aspects are running along quite well. But generally, you can listen from there, AMI.ca, and, of course, on TuneIn Radio, OO Tunes, awesome apps in which to take in the program and take us with you. By chance, at 2 p.m. Eastern, or sometime within a couple hours, we're on the air, you say, hey, I have to go out. Well, download one of those great apps to your smart device, and away you go. Do a search for us, AMI-audio, and you can take Kelly and company with you. Ramiel Muthan, she's at the home studio in Toronto, Kelly McDonald, here at the home studio, London, Ontario, and uh, we're uh, sailing through another week right here on the program. Now, we will get into the world of health and wellness here uh, now because the topic is just so timely, a lot of discussion about are we masking up? Are we going to push masking and stuff with so many sicknesses around? As we move into the winter month with uh, cold and flu season, it's inevitable that we may come down with the flu or a cold or some other bug out there. No matter how hard we try out there to stay well, it's not really a bad idea to uh, look at ways that we can better prepare in case we get sick. General health is boosting immune, uh, prepare for a smoother illness, less stress by being prepared beforehand. Francis, thanks a lot for being with us. And this is wonderful. You have grouped things into two categories. So should we start with food and drink? Um, Sure. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about how a lot of the segments we've been doing on health and wellness have to do with the ways that we can boost our immune system. And improve our overall health. But yeah, there's going to be times that no matter how many supplements we may be taking or Mm -hmm. how well we're eating and sleeping, that we may end up getting sick. So the goal of today's segment is to talk about ways in which we can prepare so that when we are sick, we can ride it out in a much smoother way. Along the same lines, I was thinking that these preparedness tips are actually a benefit um, in general on a whole because uh, when we're in a situation where we're stressed out, say like there's a power outage due to a windstorm and we have no idea when we'll get it back, it's just one less reason for our cortisol to spike if we have things under control. 
So what you want to do is you want to prepare your home when you're well and have the energy to run around and do things so that if you do get sick, you're not having to make the extra runs to the store to pick up last minute items. Mm -hmm. And I think this applies more to people who live in the cities, especially places like downtown Toronto, where you're spoiled with like local drugstores or grocery stores open 24 hours a day. And then it's easy to become complacent and think, oh, if I need something, I can get it at any time. It's also part of our online shopping culture, too, where we can get things delivered in a very short amount of time. So, yeah, we can uh, start with uh, food and drink. So food and drink are essentials that we can't overlook in the best of times and definitely not during our lowest moments when we are in the depths of an illness. So, first of all, if you are the type of person who opens the fridge to decide what you want to eat for the day and have little (laughs) in your cupboards... Then the next time you go shopping, buy some canned goods like soups or canned vegetables and fruits and some dried goods like cereal, rice, or pasta, or those dried, ready-to-eat meals that you just add water to. I mean, these things may not be tasty as fresh items are, but it's always a good idea to have backup food. And if you're that desperate, you'll probably eat it. And be thankful um, for it when you don't have to crawl around and eat up all your energy. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and if you're sick with the runs, the last thing you want to be doing is making a trip to the grocery store to buy food when your priority may be how quickly you can get to your bathroom. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. so you can, you can also buy shelf stable milk products like oat or rice milk or any of the nut milks, almond, cashew, etc. So really the goal is to make it easier for yourself by planning ahead. And it's not to say you need to hoard and stock up on things, right. but buy things that you generally use anyway, so that as you use things up, you can replace them. So you're constantly switching out older items for new items. Even for myself, sometimes I'll buy food that I generally don't eat, but it's more for an emergency situation. So while I don't generally recommend frozen meals, there may be something said to have in the freezer just to make it life easier if you're sick and you don't want to actually cook. Um, You might just also want to purchase a few things that don't even require cooking, things like crackers and some peanut butters or canned fish. That's super easy and it keeps well. Yeah, and don't forget to have some bottled water handy. I know that we are fortunate to have running water, but in terms of preparedness, the last thing you want to do is be sick in an apartment with an emergency water shutdown in the building for the day, and you've got no running water. And one other tip is that if you've got a smartphone and don't regularly order delivery, you can consider setting up an account on one of the many food delivery apps like Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes. And then this way, if for whatever reason you, for example, if your illness goes on longer than you anticipated and you're low on food but can't or don't have family or friends to rely on, you can still order food so you won't go hungry. And then some of the apps also have the option for grocery delivery. Or you can set up an account specifically for a local grocery store for delivery. And then once you have the app downloaded, make sure that you have a chance to test it out so that you are not at, so at least you're familiar with it. So if you're sick and have low energy and need to use it, you're not trying to figure out how to use it at that point. Yeah, the last thing you want is to have to set it up while you're you know, in the need of groceries, oh. right? Or you didn't put in a payment method or something like that. Yeah, how um, frustrating. And that goes back to eating up more of that energy we were talking about earlier, just trying and stressing. For sure. And I like the um, 
the idea of the non-perishable items having a bit more on hand, even if it is the stuff you already eat, because it's true. You don't want to be at your last can of soup when you're sick. You want to know that you've kind of um, have enough for, I don't know, the week or something. Okay, the other category that you wanted to talk about, Francis, is basic medical supplies. Right, Ramya. If you have prescription medications, make sure that when you start getting low, maybe down to a week's worth, that you take care of the refill so that you're not caught short. And this doesn't even have to do with being sick. Again, there could be another storm or other weather event, which makes it impossible to refill your medication. So it's better to just be prepared. And we know right now, like there's even shortages with um, uh, like Tylenol and aspirin and things like that for kids. So, you know, it's just better to have it on hand. I think regardless of whether you're sick or not, it's a good idea to have some basic supplies like a first aid kit, things like band-aids and bandages, gauze and medical tape, even things like ointments for wound care. And you should also have some Tylenol or aspirin and things like cough syrups or cough medication, whether it's your over-the-counter stuff or some more natural herbal remedies. Just make sure to check the expiry dates. And not like we don't have enough stuff to do, but you can make this an annual fall project in preparation for cold and flu season. And we probably all remember the great toilet paper rush of 2020. So if you're sick, you may find yourself spending a lot of time on the toilet, or if you've got a severe cold, you may have a runny nose. Both require tissue. So have a few extra rolls of toilet paper and facial tissue paper around the house. These things don't take up that much room. They don't expire, and you'll eventually use them up. So they're a good investment. And one other thing that you might want to have at home is a thermometer to be able to take your own temperature. Unfortunately, I don't think there's an app for that yet, but if you've got a real thermometer, you can keep track of whether you've got a fever and whether it's broken or um, if you need to go and see a doctor. Yeah, it's got to be coming, you know, with the way they were checking whenever you went to your doctors or wherever and they had that one they can put in front of you and it beep lets you know if you have the fever or not. I'm sure somehow their their ability to be Bluetooth or uh, included in a phone is, is right there and maybe already available. Um, Francis, if you don't live alone but do get sick, how can others stay well while you recover? Or adversely, uh, if someone else in your house is sick, how can you avoid it? Yeah, that's a good question, Kelly. And I like this because there are things that you can actually do to lessen the chances of spreading your illness around or catching it from someone else. If you are sharing a household with other people, consider using paper towels so that less germs are being swapped. But if you want to be a bit more environmentally friendly, then each person can have their own hand towel in the kitchen and bathroom. Another thing that we talk about in September's um, tips for staying healthy was the importance of disinfecting commonly shared and heavily touched items like doorknobs, light switches, and remote controls. And in general, make sure to keep your hands Um, hand hygiene. So wash your hands regularly, especially if you've touched your mouth or nose. And hand washing needs to be done for 20 seconds with soapy warm water to be effective. I really appreciate that there's the environmentally friendly version of uh, things that we can do as well, because that's pretty true about having you know, kind of knowing what you need, but then the big thing when you're sick is you want to toss everything out, right? Toss things that you've been touching or utilizing or, you know, toilet paper, tissues, uh, or paper towels, that kind of thing. Um, but there are other ways to keep going with that. If you do get sick, do you have any tips, Francis, on getting better more quickly? Speedy recovery. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about that with the t- hand towels. That's one thing. I mean, obviously you don't want to be recycling and reusing <laughs> facial tissue. So unless you want to go old school and then use a handkerchief, but sure. that's, uh, then you have more laundry. <laughs> so um, one of the tips um, to get better quickly is that we want to make sure that we're staying hydrated. And the best way to do that is in addition to drinking waters to eat soups. And this is twofold. One is that soup is also a liquid and will help rehydrate the body. And secondly, soups are generally much easier for the body to digest. So instead of eating a heavy meal like steak and potatoes, we make it easier for our body to digest the food we're consuming, and then the body can conserve that energy or redirect it towards fighting off the bug that we're battling. This is one of the reasons why people in the old days would do chicken noodle soup. It's plain and simple and still provides nourishment to the body. In India, it's very popular for people to eat something called kitchari, which is sort of like a stew. It's made of lentils or mm-hmm. split peas or mung beans and basmati rice with some digestive spices and ghee. Um, and in Asia, people love kanji, which is basically rice porridge. And sometimes you can find it plain or else people add meat or fish and seasonings to it. And of course, when we are sick, we need to give our body a rest and chance to recover. That means that we shouldn't be lying in bed, scrolling on our phones. We should really take that time to get as much rest and sleep as possible so that our body um, uh, can work on healing and fighting off the illness. It's really not fun being sick, but with a bit of preparedness, we can definitely recover with minimal additional effort. Mm -hmm. One of the most frustrating things when we look at even you know, in your space and if other people are around you or whatever that they're saying a lot about is open those windows a little bit. That little bit will help. But here in Canada, of course, as we get into the months where it's colder, we also know this is red flag for it's too cold, whether it's at school, whether it's in an office place or home, people aren't able to do that enough. Um, and again, I think some applications you can if your heat you live high enough or you have enough heat pouring out, but it seems like such an energy waste. But I know, Francis, that's one of the struggles too, because we know the fresher the air, the movement of those germs is, is uh, foiled a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point too, Kelly. Um, one thing that people can do is if they're, you know, going out for a bit, you know, air, you know, you can turn on your heating and then just air the rooms out or even shut your bedroom door if you're, if you, if you're sharing a house and just air that while you're out and then just shut it again when you're in. So then at least there's a little bit of free uh, circulating air coming in. You bet. Thanks, Francis. Excellent. And very timely with this one as we're seeing the stuff on the TV and the battles of mask or do not mask. Oh boy, what a topic. Put it on. Be safer, folks. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. Francis Wong joins us bi-weekly on the program to talk wellness opposite our uh, nutrition segment with Julia Karanchis that we do uh, every second week as well. Coming up next on the program, Dr. Larissa Monis joins us. She's Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada. She's going to join us to talk about their second annual I on the cure wow it's good it's an amazing vision research competition that we'll learn about and see what we can do to get involved stay tuned on kelly and company
Some might call me a pusher. And we're not talking of evil stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you kindly. Kelly McDonald here. Um, I'm talking about ways in which you can consume the program. For sure. I was talking tune-in radio earlier. I was pushing that. Oh, oh, tunes often. And, of course, uh, Radio Player Canada. But now I'm talking about podcasts. Subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast using your favorite podcast platform. We're not fussy. We're all over the place. You just do a search for Kelly and Company AMI-audio. There's a whole bunch of content there that you can check out. But remember, we're available to you. And when you're in there, maybe give us a rating and review. As mentioned, I'm the host of the program, Kelly McDonald, my co-host over there in Toronto at our home studio, Ramya Muthan. Well, this week, you can take part in something really, really fascinating and fun. Canadians can have their say on the future of vision research in Fighting Blindness Canada's second annual Eye on the Cure. So what exactly is Eye on the Cure? It's a competition that awards three prizes, totaling up to $100,000 for the most promising projects that hope to advance uh, progress in vision research. And we want to learn all about this. They're already in the midst of um, putting it all together and taking part. Your your involvement as an audience member is up. So we want to learn more about it with Dr. Larissa Moniz, Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada. Dr. Moniz, thank you for coming on Kelly & Company. Nice to have you back on. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk, um, first of all, as a reminder, a little bit about yourself. Do you mind telling us why this work resonates with you? Absolutely. So my background is as a scientist. So I have a, a PhD and I did some some other training after that. So I worked in a lab. I was trying to understand how different molecules communicated in a cell and how that impacted cell growth. So just, I love science. I really love science. And I think science really underpins all of our health discoveries. And so this competition is really a way to get some of that excitement out there, to try to explain all of our really passionate researchers who spend their lives um, studying um, eye health, vision research. We want them to tell Canadians um, why they are so passionate about what they do and hopefully um, get Canadians sort of jazzed about their research as well. Yeah, it's amazing when anyone who has a passion, tells you anything about it and shares, uh, breaks it down for you. And, and again, it's so hard, especially if, you know, you're, it's not your field, you don't have the background, but simplifying it as, as best as they can. And again, sometimes you just can't because of the work being done. And that's why the folks who are doing it have that knowledge, have that base. Tell us a little bit about the competition, the uh, Eyes on the Cure competition, and what is hoped to be achieved in the long run over this next little while. Yeah, so as you described at the top, this is really an unconventional research competition. So we have three teams who are going sort of head-to-head to compete for vision research funding. So we sort of um, describe it as like Dragon's Den meets a TED Talk. So what these research teams have done is they have put together presentations where exactly like you're saying, they're trying to break down some really complex science and really complex research to make it understandable by... Um, by my mother, by by you, by anybody, even like me. I have a science background, but I have a very specific science background. I, I don't know about surgery, so we want to hear from them. Hear about what they're trying to, what they're proposing to do, why they think it's important, and how they're going to do it. And then there are sort of two stages to the competition. In the first stage, they present it to a, a panel of judges who ask some really hard-hitting questions. 
those judges have voted on the top prize of fifty thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and then. All of this is being um, recorded, and on Friday, November 18th, so this Friday, starting at 12 p.m., you can watch this competition, which will be streamed online. And so we are inviting everybody to stream it for free. And the exciting thing is not only can you watch it, though, you get to have your say. So for a minimum donation of $50, you are able to vote for the second prize, which is a $30,000 research award, the People's Choice Award. So it's really an opportunity to learn about science, but also for you to say, what do you think was the most innovative research? Which research do I think will impact people soonest? So you get to be in on on the the decision making. That is great. Yeah. It, it, you know, to, to be involved. You know, obviously um, that fundraising portion of it to, to kind of opt for a, this is going to be the kind of thing that's very interesting to see roll out in front of you and operate, but. The one thing I wonder is, so if I can't be there Friday at that time, is there a time period to over the weekend, say, or Monday, um, watch uh, if they're available? Uh, obviously, I know you can't necessarily ask questions at that point, um, but is there any mechanism for that? Or uh, what's the time period that, that will follow in, in the aspect for the awarding of, of you know the, the, the positions and people's choice and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on so starting from I mentioned Friday at noon, the um, the video will be available to stream for 36 hours. So essentially till midnight on the, the Saturday. So you've got 36 hours to watch it, and you have 36 hours, and within that time you can um, vote or people can vote for it. And then after that, um, we will announce the People's Choice Award on at a Facebook Live event on November 22nd. Um, so. The first prize award, you'll get to hear about it when you watch the video. Um, you get to vote for it for about 36 hours. That's when we've got the lines open, essentially. And then we'll announce the, all the winners on November 22nd. Dr. Moniz, when it comes to the voting, uh, I mean, obviously, it's just it's direct impact. That's the core of it, right? You can listen, understand what the, the pitches are, and then put your money and your vote toward that, which is really fantastic. Is there anything else... Um, that you want to cover about that audience participation um, element? Is there, you know, something we get to hear from the voters? Do we get to understand um, why people voted for who they vote for? Is there anything like engagement wise that way? So what you'll be able to see as part of the presentation, you'll see some of the judges asking questions. And one of our judges is a scientist, but another one of our judges is actually um, somebody who's living with an eye disease and then you'll also hear some other members of our of our sort of academy who just have an interest in vision research and so you'll hear some of their questions so you'll get to see what are some people thinking about what are some of those questions that were top of mind when they heard the presentations or heard about these projects and then and you'll hear the researchers try try to answer that so I, i think it's a really engaging way to understand a little bit about how um, research is often funded. It's having these sort of tough questions, but I think it's also putting the researchers in a, in a little bit of a different spot than they normally do. They're normally used to talking to other scientists. Here they really have to sort of break it down and try to really get to the the nub of what is important about the research They think about it in those terms sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and the invested that people have in some of the answers they, they want to know about. Where did the idea for the competition come from originally? How was it born? It sort of came out of um, COVID, actually, where everything was sort of thrown into this virtual environment, and we were trying to find ways to connect with our community, 
raise awareness of vision research, but then also support researchers who, you know, during the pandemic, there were just like a lot of other fields, they had a lot of challenges. Um, Their research slowed down or they weren't allowed to go into their labs. They had a hard time hiring. There were supply chain issues. So it was really a way to try to um, support this important vision research community and keep the vision research going. And then it was so popular that we decided to do it again this year. Are you able to tell us uh, some of the focuses, the the pitches that competitors are focusing on? Absolutely. So we have three research teams. Um, One of the teams is from Victoria, B.C., and they are focusing on an inherited retinal disease called Stargardt disease, which mm-hmm. um, impacts children and causes vision loss at a quite an early age. Um, and the second team is based, they're a, a, an interesting team because they're based out of both Toronto and Calgary. They're both ophthalmologists who are also researchers. And they're focusing on an eye disease called retinopathy of prematurity. Mm-hmm. And this is a disease that can impact babies who are born premature and can cause vision loss, and then if it's not treated, it can also cause blindness. Right. And then our final team is also Alberta-based. They're also from Calgary, well-represented out in Calgary this year. Um, they're a team of um, clinician scientists who are focusing on glaucoma, and specifically they're trying to develop a new surgical technique for glaucoma. Awesome. Oh, boy, does that ever sound great. All right, how can we watch this online and be a part of it? So um, I hope everybody who is listening, if you're interested, please come and watch it. As I mentioned, it's free free to watch. You just have to register. So go to um, our website. It's fbcionthecure.ca. So if you go to the website, there'll be all the information there. And I really hope that, that you tune in to watch. I mean, we can tell you're um, so passionate about this, right, and this approach to doing it. We're all learning on uh, as as just general public learning so much about just these three conditions that are being uh, talked about with these research teams and then all the other processes um, that goes into research. What's a highlight before we go uh, for you with this competition? Um, For me, I guess there are two highlights. One was actually seeing the camaraderie among the team. So all the teams got together in Toronto a few years ago, not a few years ago, a few weeks ago to to film the initial part of it and just seeing how excited they were to talk to each other, discuss research. They were also supportive of each other. Um, It really reminds you of how they're really passionate about the work they do. And they're really just looking to see great research get ahead. They sort of once somebody said, well, can't can't we just all split the money? Cause like all the research is so great. So I would say that was one thing. And the other one was hearing some of the scientists really break down some very complicated um, concepts into into ways that were so easy to understand. And it sort of was a few aha moments for me as I was watching the presentations. Well, it's really wonderful that you came to tell us more about this on the show. Thank you so much. And we hope you get a huge turnout and huge voting base um, to continue with this, this show. Thank you so much. Yeah, so go to fbcionthecure.ca and um, register to watch, please. Amazing. And we'll put that up on our blog as well, ami.ca slash kellyco, so people have the direct link. Um, Have a great time. All the best. Thank you. Dr. Larissa Moniz is the Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada, and we were talking about their second annual competition and airing of Eye on the Cure, this vision research program. Really, really interesting.
Coming up in the next hour of the program, while the United Nations Climate Change Conference gathers world leaders to discuss the big picture of climate change, Young Wang focuses on the little things we can do in our daily life to reduce our own carbon footprint. And my content development specialist Jim Crisco joins us on Voices today. We discuss his passion for video editing, comedy, and camping in the Rockies. But up next, community reporter Mathieu Rochette. He's going to highlight for us the Quebec Federation's Spaghetti Night featuring guest speaker Joe Schwartz, Dr. Joe Schwartz. In two minutes. Here we are arriving back here for hour two of Kelly and Company here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time right here on AMI-audio. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate your time and hanging out with us. Always uh, find that we've got some great content and a real variety. If you're settling into the show and you're pretty new and have had contact on Twitter with people who have said, hey, new to the show, guys, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, we always try to please. And uh, what we do is uh, have a show lineup that's Quite diverse, Ramya, I have to say. That lady, Ramya Muthan, she's at the home studio in Toronto. That's a great way to describe it. I know we make a big deal out of our Monday shows and how they're, they're, there's a, quite a variety, but every day is the same. Every day is a variety. Well, not the same. Different, well, that's what I mean. A variety yeah. every day, the same. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's true. Why? I guess it, it comes with having, you know, eight segments and... The scope of topics that we cover. yeah, Kind of a, a, a luxury that way. Mm-hmm. Amazing contributors, community reporters that come on and tell us all sorts of stuff. Like yep. this fella here in Montreal hanging out waiting and saying, thanks for getting him there. Mondays and Tuesdays, we visit with our community reporters. We find out about things that are going on in their area. They bring them to us and we discuss and they give us the details in case you're just thinking, gee, I want to go out and do something or I want to get involved. Or you get those moments of, geez, I never knew. From Montreal, our community reporter, Mathieu Rochette, he joins us. Mathieu, how are you? Very good. And you, Kelly Romia? How are you? All right. Good, good. Can't, can't complain. I'm not really a spaghetti eater. However, that's one of the great <laughs> things out there that I could be brought. Well, okay, maybe the spaghetti sauce I could be bribed with. Uh, you've got an interesting uh, topic here to start the show with, the Quebec Federation of the Blind Spaghetti Night and Dr. Joe Schwartz, this guest speaker that evening. Yeah, exactly. So for people who are not family who, um, you know, who's QFB is, so it's, you know, it's a nonprofit organization operating in collaboration with the MAB Mackay Readaptation Center. Um, basically, MAB Mackay Readaptation Center is the same thing as we buy, but mostly like the English side. Um, so, yeah, and the QFB, uh, they, they kind of do like all kind of different social activities. And the one that we are interested about today, it's, of course, the spaghetti, but mostly the Dr. Schwartz. So, Dr. Schwartz, I don't know if you guys in Toronto can hear him once in a while because he's kind of everywhere, actually, in radio, TV, documentary, read a lot of papers and stuff. Uh, his, his main thing is he's really, really good to um, verbalize in words that we or family can understand 
hardcore scientist research and study. And he's recently, you might hear him, like he was like trying to figure out helping the COVID and stuff uh, in the last two years. But his main thing is about the food um, chemistry related between the body and the mind. So he's really, really good at explaining stuff, um, really nice, enthusiastic. And he'll be then guest on the November 23rd uh, of November on the uh, London Hall. So, of course, you got the spaghetti and stuff. But like I said, the main thing is that Dr. Schwartz is going to talk about medical issue. I'm not sure. They did not really specify of which medical is uh, going to talk about, but it's always interesting. It's 15 bucks. It's really cheap, 21 if you're not a member. Um, and you just need to call Lucio Dentino. Sorry, Lucio, if I don't pronounce your family, your last name properly. All information, it's a qfb.ca. And uh, they will also do like Christmas party in December just to let you know in advance. So it, it's always cool to follow them. They do all kind of stuff. That's awesome. Now, I will say... Dr. Schwartz also does a little magic. Don't know if he'll do any that night, but since I'm not a big spaghetti guy, I'd have him snap his finger and get me some more sauce. That's what I would say. But, of course, after everything I've said now, they'll be saying, Scratch Kelly from the guest list. (laughs) Sounds wonderful. Good luck to them on on the event. We'll put that up on the uh, Kelly & Company blog, mi.ca slash kellyco. Mm-hmm. And, Mathieu, you want to tell us about this new government program to help you in your professional life? Yeah, okay. So I'm always excited when there is new help, uh, new program, or build um, to help us. Like, it's we all need to start somewhere. And it's this little program. It will be designed for 10 people starting right now with uh, living and in, uh, independent living Montreal. Um, it's about like how to create our CV. All right, have a catch fight live in radio. Oh man, they're really tilt. It's like a bad hockey game brawl. Get the refs in there. Send the linemen in. Wait, that sounds great. Okay. Sorry, guys. Whoa. Hold on. Let Get me, your own uh, bill. Okay, let's just pause and listen for a bit. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> okay. Separate live radio. This is happening. Okay, so let's go back to business. Um, so yeah, ten people <laughs> will get like a training on how to create your CV, how to be prepared to an interview. Um, and most important things, you might just don't know what you like, or what you are capable of, and they will help you during all the process with different professional um, people in different area. And on top of it, it is free and you are paid doing this because this is the main thing. They just don't want to give you some information and and just let you go like this. This is built to help you to find a good jobs or at least, you know, maybe uh, a, a, a not permanent jobs while you're in study. It is designed for you and to give you all the tools you need to create yourself independent and autonomy. So it's uh, it's starting right now, like I said, uh, to get all information, you um, you can go on the website I'm looking at because my 
satisfied losing my notes. Well, that's because you uh, had to jump in as a linesman and break the break them up. I know the nerve okay, of those guys. You go at g eight underscore m uh, dot org for all programs on the offering. More specify on this one, you just need to write an email to project with the s at the v a underscore m dot um, org. And the name of the program manager is Marie Liotte. Awesome. Okay. Very, very good. Okay. Uh, you've got a, something a, kind of along a similar line because we're always wondering how the heck do we find this out? How do we not? Inca has got a research uh, a project going on here. Access to information barriers encountered by those who are blind or partially sighted. And this is mainly in the employment context. Yeah, and it's it's not the first time that I talk about accessibility in the last year, and I'm not going to deny it kind of things that uh, I'm sensitive of. It's, you know, briefly, my mom was blind and grew up in the 70s and 80s, and she was able to find a job, not easily, but she wasn't well you know what it is, and she was still able to find a job. And now with all technologies and stuff, it is honestly crazy how difficult it is to find a job, even in a government, even in bank, or has to follow some federal rules. And it's, we're still not there, you might, like even with the old high technologies. So each time I see something that can help uh, to increase knowledge on how to develop from the A to the Z something accessible. I'm always there to set out. So this time it's still the CNIB or um, collaborate with um, the University of Montreal, different um, doctors and, uh, and master's study, uh, research study to just a little online survey about 65 questions, 30 minutes around, so it's not that long. And it's all covering um, all kind of aspects of your, I mean, what kind of disability you are, which work, where you, where you maybe work right now, where you were working yesterday, uh, which tools you need, what is, it's a complete survey on figure out like what is the issue, what's going on, and again, I'm not sure that it will be like 100% helpful. You know, we'll see what they're going to do with all the information. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly, uh, I mean, on my personal opinion, will hurt you, everyone here, no. to get to take just a 30 minutes and go there. And it's it's your time to put the reality in words based on a paper. Like, you can say out loud, but the words fly. But when you write it down, there's still a proof. So um, I won't say the, the, the links of the thing because there's a bunch of letter and number. Uh, you can find out this, the research on the CNIB.ca. Uh, and like you said, the, the links will be on the blog. For sure. So it's, uh, look, guys, they need help. We need help. It's just like, it, you know, trade, you, right? I don't know how you feel about these things when you do them, but I, I'm, I'm gaining hope when people gather information, something's being done with it. And how sometimes I, I get the hope is, first of all, oh, you're doing a survey for this. 
okay, great. I'd like to see something done with it. Who knows what? Because none of us have that magic crystal ball to tell us in the future. And not necessarily do we have the idea of what can be done. It takes talking and getting ideas from the, the participants. Mm-hmm. But also, even in the questions. If, if, questions are changing. And sometimes they're getting a little more direct, a little more understanding exactly. of our frustration. So uh, I yeah. think sometimes we can tell or we can get some sense of, What's going to be done maybe with this by how serious, how for real it is. Matthew, thank you. We're out of time, pal. All right. Take care, guys. I'll talk to you in a month. You betcha. We'll put this up on the blog to make sure folks get opportunities to take part in these things and and to to follow through ami.ca slash Kelly Comet. Matthew Rochette is our committee reporter in Montreal joining us on the program once a month. Our committee reporters are with us on Mondays and Tuesdays here on Kelly & Company. Coming up next, while the United Nations Climate Change Conference gathers those world leaders together to discuss the big picture of climate change, Young Wang focuses on the little things that we can do in our daily lives to reduce our own carbon footprint next on the program. All this guy does is tell us where we can find the show. Man, talk about a pusher. Folks, from your TV, TBTEL IPTV customers can find us on channel 1112. And Westman, you guys over there can find us on channel 889. Visit ami.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. See? See what he does? Kelly McDonald here with Romeo Muthan. We're here to inform, right? That's, that's always we do here. shoving yep. the information on people. Come on, mm-hmm. a pusher. Yep, exactly. Well, once a month, specifically on the third Tuesday, we're joined by Young Wang, and she brings us all kinds of fascinating uh, and thought-provoking discussions. Today, we're talking about little things that we can do, our little parts for the environment. Young, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here again. And I'm curious about what prompted you to bring this subject and this particular angle, right? Like everyday life, everyday people, what we can do. Um, how come you brought this up? Yeah, because as you know, COP27 is now taking place in Egypt. So mm-hmm. that's the United Nations um, Climate Change Conference. So while I'm thinking the world leaders and, and organizations are talking about big topics, like reducing uh, greenhouse emissions, uh, climate change adaptations. Um, what we can do as individual, like ordinary people, actually, I think that matters like most to ourselves. So mm-hmm. we can really do some little things. Um, so it's, and it's interesting to learn like what people are doing actually yes, uh, to help sure. with that. Yeah, let's start with you, Kelly. <laughs> I knew Did it if I said something. Mm. Um, you know, Thanks it's an interesting. Kels. Well, exactly, right? Jeez, or voluntold. Um, I like to think. I certainly think about it a lot more than I used to. We be doing this show has really made me stop and feel. Hey, what what things do I do that 
I'm not going to say I can solve everything, but I think that was the most empowering thing. Knowing every little thing helps. Don't flush wipes, oh. that kind of thing. Um, turn, even down to the energy credit, turn lights off. When you're not using it, just shut it. Or if you're having your window open, do you need? on next to it don't waste the air conditioning mm-hmm. all these little things that really suck electricity or just the the creating of that electricity takes world resources um you know and 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 utilize stuff don't buy more than i'm going to eat up and utilize so i can't stand and again when we talk about these things young i these were things I was taught as a kid. My parents would go crazy if they, well, who's, who's, aren't you guys eating this stuff? Well, we've yes. had it for a week. It's going to be bad soon. Then we mm-hmm. don't buy that anymore. And we're eating it, whether it's bad or almost or not, because we want to have it again down the way until we get our belly ache. Ramya, how about you? <laughs> um, yeah, no, there are a lot of things that in, I'd say just in the past two years or so, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm I'm the best at uh, considering climate uh, awareness and climate action. But there are things that I realize in my own life um, that needed to be changed. And one of these things are plastic water bottles, right? My family, we had used so much plastic that way, just use and throw, use and throw. Not You're not supposed to refill them. You're not supposed to utilize them for hot liquids and whatever and, and all these different things. But we buy so many water bottles. So that's now 100% not happening. Like I carry my own water bottle around. And then the other thing is, um, you talked about this, Kel's food waste, but specifically for me, the packaging, like when I'm buying foods, I tried, I went on the the website, like in, in the city of Toronto website to find out what exactly is recyclable. All this information that we think, oh, because it says recyclable on the package, it must be recyclable. And that's just not the case. There's so many things that are promoted as being recyclable, but actually our city and our province does not recycle them because they're lined with plastic or, Mm. uh, you know, it's black plastic is not recognizable over the clear plastic, all these different things. So it was very eye-opening to me to find out what is recyclable and what isn't and therefore um, understand, you know, what I should be buying, what can be reused and Things like picnics, like over the summer, we Mm. talked a lot about going picnicking. And well, every time we did that, I would bring completely reusable utensils, plates, cups, whatever, and bring it back home um, and wash and reuse rather than buy things just to throw out, right? Yeah, yeah. Friendly to the environment. (laughs) Also, I think the one other thing that we leave off to is disposal of medications. We get in that situation where maybe there's a medication, we're changed, our doctor has changed or whatever. And so many of us just think, well, can I just dump these last few in the toilet or can I just throw it in my garbage and away they go? I think we have to ask the questions of our our drugstores. What do Mm -hmm. I do with this? Mm -hmm. Young, how about you? Yeah. Yeah. Talking about that water bottle is a big issue. So like when East and West Learning Connections is um, holding like parties or in-person meetings, I would ask people to bring their own water bottle. Yeah, <laughs> to mm-hmm. say some, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And and I remember I had a water bottle from my uh, older son, Eric, because uh, it's a thermal bottle, but the, the handle is broken. So he didn't want to use it because it's ugly. It looked ugly, right? Mm-hmm. But he said, it's only the handle is broken. That's Everything right. else it was good. So why should I throw it away to, you know, add another piece of garbage where I can actually still use it? Yes. So that I, I really wish I had 
taken a picture of that bottle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to use uh, the ugly cup, but for, 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 for us, I know for myself, yeah. I like the idea it has the lid so in case I put it somewhere and knock it over, this contents mm-hmm. isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and also, once um, I, have a, I have a friend uh, who is a, a professor at Laurier, and once we met for uh, coffee, and he brought his own coffee cup. And I thought, wow, that's really cool, cool idea. So when I, um, when I worked, I worked for a short period of time uh, for Sobeys. So when I worked there, they, had, they have a Starbucks in, uh, downstairs. Mm-hmm. And every morning I went there to buy a cup of coffee. Then I, I brought my own coffee cup. So, you know, just these little things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just this morning, my, my little son, Aaron, came downstairs and checked the room temperature and said, oh, it's 70 degrees. Uh, and said, uh, he said, oh, it's, you know, I feel cold. Why, why don't we, you know, raise it up? And I reached for his arm. Like he was wearing a T-shirt. And I said, why don't you, you know? put on a jacket or sweater uh but he said well like what am i not supposed to wear a t-shirt i said no like i wear a a jacket and i feel you know pretty comfortable with this temperature Mm. so and i like like he grows up in canada like he's used to a very comfortable lifestyle but i came from china when i was a kid we were poor right we we had barely enough food to feed ourselves, and we didn't have many things. So we didn't want to waste anything, not even a piece of paper or a plastic bag, always wanting to reuse something, reuse things, and or to use them in other way. Um, yeah, but then I, um, you know, we uh, there's a Chinese saying, um, talking about clothes, like uh, new for three years, then old for three years, and you mend it and use for another three years. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. It's like our hand-me-downs, right? Like there's yes. lots of families and stuff lasts forever. Or, oh, no, no, be yeah. good with that because you know, especially kids who only wear something for seven months before they grow out of it. Oh, gosh, um, yeah. Can we, talk about yeah. What, can we talk about what a carbon footprint is, Young? Mm-hmm. We, we talk mm-hmm. about it, but what is it? So, uh, Carbon footprint is the total greenhouse gases uh, generated by our actions. So there's there is a like a, there's like a statistic like figure people will calculate your uh, average uh, uh, carbon footprint, and uh, and the, like the word average so far is close to four tons per year, but uh, you know like develop countries like Canada is really bad with that. So mm-hmm. I collected I collected these data from uh, World Bank uh, statistics. So Remia, uh, do you have that uh, in your hand? Uh, maybe you can yes. uh, tell us. Like I collected some African countries, uh, Asian countries, European and North America, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and the comparison is actually pretty wild. So as you said, this is from the yeah. World Bank. Their their stats mm-hmm. for 2019 CO2 emissions uh, and it's metric tons per capita. So I'll just run through these and you can tell me how you're feeling about it. In Ethiopia, it's 0.2, Egypt 2.5, South Africa 7.5, India 1.8. China, 7.6, United Kingdom, 5.2, Germany, 7.9, United States, 14.7, and Canada, 15.4. Like a staggering difference between some of these countries. (laughs) And I just like how we point the finger at everyone else. (laughs) Uh, I know, absolutely. Oh, like 100% we point the finger immediately. Oh, my goodness. You know, India, we've always made too many comments about for a country in our position. They're one of the lowest. In yeah, 2019, it's, at least. Yeah, it's it's shocking. Like, uh, like we Canadians, you know, generate so much. Even us picking we on the Americans, for heaven's right? sakes. And on, we're higher than Yeah, one. probably because we have more natural resources. I don't know. We need to explore that, why we have so, so much. But uh, we are bad at... Uh, wasting food. Yes, we are. Well. Yep. So yep. We, we and are I think spoiled. that's how we do it. We are, Exactly. Yeah, and uh, it makes me think about, you know, different countries. Um, Because all these industrialized countries, um, they have already gone through that developmental uh, stages. So they burn the fossil uh, fuels and make all of those materials that support our, you know, living standard, build this world, um, which is good. So we enjoy a a higher uh, standard of living. But um, but how about uh, people in you know underdeveloped countries? So you know, Ethiopia like zero point five something like that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the 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 footprint. But when they want to catch up, they'll need to um, eat more. They'll need to grow more crops, uh, have more food, um, use more materials. So how can we sustain? Like, but. You know, that's the dilemma we are facing. So we cannot um, say to those people, no, no, you cannot. You cannot catch up. Just stay. You cannot live up to my standards. Um, But on the other hand, indeed, if everybody else is living a lifestyle like like us, Mm -hmm. the earth just cannot sustain. So that's a big dilemma, I think. So what do you think we can do as a whole? Is there any solution? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's big questions. Yeah. That's a definite yeah. question that we're pondering right now, Young. Even this whole conversation, your angle of what are we doing in our everyday lives, right? Like not mm-hmm. throwing it up to... Um, the 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 world leaders and not throwing it up to our governments and not throwing it up to even our our manufacturers and distributors but asking ourselves are we making a difference i think is a huge question and then like you said technology is a big part of why we live better but is it also a big part of um all this carbon emission and and greenhouse gas emission and really the the carbon footprint that we're leaving behind and we're just going to have to leave it at that question, Young. Uh, maybe we can share some of this other information you brought to us from David Suzuki's website uh, later on in the week. But thank you so much for the discussion. Oh, sure. Nice talking to you. Thank you. you. Thank you. Have a nice day. Too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bye. 
Young Wang joins us on the third Tuesday of every month, and uh, she brings us fascinating discussions and things to think about. Lots of questions there around our everyday uh, actions towards climate change. Talk about the numbers. Mm. Yeah, that's all I can say because you just sit back and uh, feel a little uh, abashed. Oh, abashed over those. Coming up in just a moment on the program, it's uh, AMI Content Development Specialist Jim Crisco. He'll be joining us on Voices in a moment. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Company, Romeo Muthan, Kelly McDonald, your host on the program as we work our way through a Tuesday edition of the show. So we have a, our Voices segment once a month, and our next guest, um, we, we get on the show every couple of weeks. He brings us a wonderful report from Edmonton, talks about things in uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to now tell you folks about the, the segment, okay? And then I'm going to tell you who the person is today and their title. Um, on our voices segment, we like to hear about your passions, drives, and and you know anything that you are kind of really into and things you find important. We are visiting today with Jim Crisco, our content development specialist for AMI in the central reason region. Now I'm confused because James, I always say out west. And I never get a smack on the hand for being incorrect. Have you always had the title of Central Region? I have. I have. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> I get Sylvie is Pacific. I get Delahanty is Atlantic. And I get the McGee is Content Development Specialist. <laughs> but, but I would have thought Karen to have that. And in my head, Karen was Central. And you were uh, West, and and okay, I did get Atlantic and Pacific makes sense to me because of where they are, of course, you know, uh, Vancouver and uh, Halifax, respectively. Uh, so I do apologize for all the time that I've <clears throat> claimed that you were set West, and I made up a, a <laughs> I made up a position for you. You know what's funny uh, is that is, that actually became a co- topic of conversation when they were dividing up the regions because I thought that I should be called the prairies, the prairie region, and uh, and John Melville, our our, our VP, said no, it's it, you're central, it's it's central, you know, Canada geographically, um, and but it's been a topic of of the debate ever since, and I I would I would have gone with prairies myself. Well, that's hilarious because I just re- read it. Like, I don't know when I knew you were central, but I just read it and I was like, okay, he's central. Nobody I ever thought questioned it. Melville was moving <laughs> position names again around. I thought John was bored with your titles again and moving things around, right? So, that's so, so who's Karen McGee? Do we know? Because it doesn't say in the signature, there's nothing to memorize. Oh, uh, I say she's because uh, she's Ontario. Karen's Eastern, I believe, isn't she? Well, no, because she yeah, covers Ontario. Ryan's Atlantic, and she covers Ontario and Quebec. She, but she, she, yeah, she uh, covers Ontario and, and English speaking Quebec. Yes, and I believe that that is Eastern, isn't it? 
I guess so. <laughs> I'll take your word. But then again, I thought you were West, not Central. So shows Here's you what I Here's a controversial version of what we th- could say it is. Okay? Man, I feel geography from... challenged like Rumya. Yeah, and I am already geography challenged. I so know. That's why I just took your word I heard it. you when you had to do the weather forecast and stuff. <laughs> so Matt says, uh, Ryan is East, Karen is default. <laughs> Set everybody off. Jim is West and Sylvie's Wester. <laughs> Yeah, I, Karen, maybe we'll put her as the floater, right? If something goes on or Jim says, I need some help out here. Well, oh, Karen, you're here. Great. Um, so, Jim, let's start with the fact that you're a huge fan since we started off try, trying to think ourselves funny. You're a huge fan of SCTV and one time worked at the TV studio in Edmonton where the show was produced. Wow. Can we talk a little bit about, first of all, your experience, but also when you think about something like that, where the show was done, the clout that that show had here in Canada and in the U.S., uh, how important was that show to Edmonton and sketch comedy shows? You know what? It, to me, it was, it, well, I, and I believe that, that people who are in the, the sketch comedy business, and I'm talking you know, the Saturday Night Lives and, and those type of programs, they they understood the the clout and the, the impact of SCTV. SCTV was in, insanely funny, had a great cast that all went on to, to, to more work, to bigger and better things. And, um, and, and there's no doubt about it that they had a huge influence in sketch comedy, like from uh, Saturday Night Live to Mad TV, um, a lot of places looked at them as kind of the, you know, the way you do it, the way it's done. Mm. And it was a huge positive impact on Edmonton. We still talk about it. And we have in our downtown core, uh, not far actually from where, if you remember when, when, uh, when you guys were in town and I took you to the Elton John sign down right. in, do we in, ever? In, outside, yeah. outside yeah. the arena. Yep. Outside the arena, there is now a statue there of Bob and Doug McKenzie sitting on a bench uh, that you can take your pictures with. Uh, wow. That you know is is there as a tribute to the SCTV days here in Edmonton. Well, and a lot of people, of course, listening in have no idea who Bob and Doug McKenzie were. So I'll just say one name: Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, you know they became these kind of cultural icons outside of Canada like yeah. they were they were known around the world they defined so, us really really great <laughs> absolutely what was it like <laughs> being at the station though what was the environment like in Edmonton at well, that time well I, I was I worked at the station a few years after they produced right um, uh, SETV there but I worked with a lot of the crew that worked on SETV so the guys were were all from the station they still work there. And just the stories and the, um, you know, the, the, the behind-the-scenes stories of, of the production that happened there and the amount of fun they had. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I didn't hear uh, a bad word about any of the cast from the crew that worked with them. They said that they were all really down-to-earth, fun people that just wanted to do a good show, and um, and they worked really hard to do it. They put in super long hours while they were there, but they did some absolutely classic material. And if you, you know, if you're an SCTV fan and you're watching some of the episodes, cause there were episodes filmed in Toronto, there were episodes filmed here. You can identify a lot of the, uh, 
sort of the local geography of, of Edmonton in, in the shots that they had and where things were, were filmed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's just a great thing. And it, it was, you know, I, I unfortunately wasn't there during the production, but I, I really felt kind of uh, close to it because of, you know, the knowing the people that worked on it and, uh, and they had photos up everywhere of the different characters and the different actors that were there. And, uh, you know, stories with John Candy and, and Harold Ramis mm-hmm. and all these others. Just fantastic. Yeah, real unbelievable. Really cool. And what a thing to know. And I'm sure you saw the difference in the people you worked with, too, in Edmonton on their 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 skill set, the, the enjoyment of being their work, and just everything that that, put, that show would have pushed everyone to such a high level. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, you know, it was kind of lightning in a bottle for, uh, for the Edmonton, for Edmonton as a city, but for the production community, because it would be, you know, not as likely to, to be able to pull something like that together now. Uh, but back then, uh, they, they really hit it out of the park. And we'll get back to talk, talking more TV and production in a second, Jim, but we really get to know people here on Voices, right? And you were the past president of the Edmonton Community Patrol Society, which sounds fantastic. We don't yeah. even know what it is. So can you tell us, <laughs> because you spent 15 years there, so what is it and what did you do? Uh, yeah, the, the Edmonton Community Patrol Society, what it is, is it's a, uh, it, it started out very grassroots uh, as a, uh, an organization of folks who wanted to, to try to help prevent and you know mitigate mitigate uh, crime and disorder in neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. the best way to do that is to observe and uh, have people out in the community observing and you know reporting suspicious things to the police if there are any, uh, and being somewhat of a, a bit of a community liaison between the police and community members over crime and what's going on in neighborhoods. And, uh, and so what, what we found is it's a, because there's other, other good organizations like um, neighborhood watch. I'm not sure if you have them out East, but it's a similar type of concept, but it's where you just sort of observe from your house. Mm-hmm. Well, in this particular instance, we wanted to put people on the streets, right? right. Like walking, Be riding in their vehicles. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we wear the, the reflective vests and we have signs on our vehicles. And what it is, is just to let people know that the, the, the community cares and people are watching. And, you know, if you, if you're deciding to do something that, you know, falls along the lines of crime and disorder, maybe you should re- think twice because people are, Watching. You know, caring in the community and they're watching. It's and, interesting uh, you say that because so, we always say police presence, right? Yeah, and what we understand and realize uh, is that the police can't do everything. They can't be everywhere. They can't see everything. And we're our, our philosophy is is completely observe and report. There's no confrontation. There's no interaction. Um, and truthfully, there's very little that we usually have to report because. It, you know, maybe partially we're doing our job, but partially is, you know, we it, you can if you can keep the crime level down, it mitigates having to to really do anything. So, right for us, it's just uh, an act of it's a good way to be in the community and and be able to feel like you're you're doing something positive versus mm-hmm. 
just being reactionary or, or not doing anything at all. Or leaving it to someone else. I remember doing Goblin Patrol when I was a ham radio operator, and we'd do this on, at, at, on Devil's Night and on Halloween. And again, it was just that you weren't going to get involved if you happened to see anything, but people would you know pair up and get in you know, cars and just go through neighborhoods. And we would use our radios if we saw anything weird. Absolutely. And, you know, we've done lots of things where, because uh, we, I have, I have a couple of friends of mine and myself that we patrol at least once a week. And we'll see somebody who's left their garage door open and we go and let them know, or, you know, car window down or something to let them know you might want to close that so you don't get, you're not a victim of, of crime. And people so appreciate it. They, they, you know, people do want to live in safe neighborhoods. And, um, and it, you know, if you can be part of the solution, it's, uh, it, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Jim, your major in broadcasting, as Romy said, we're going to get back to a little bit of this kind of content here. Uh, your major in uh, broadcasting was video editing. You still enjoy it anytime you get the opportunity to do it. Why? Uh, you know what? The, the, I, I, I love editing. <laughs> I really do. Uh, and uh, when I started at AMI, uh, I, I, I was a videographer editor, so I used to shoot and edit. Mm-hmm. And the reason you shoot is so you have something to edit <laughs> at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, the, but what, what I find about editing as the, in the process, in the production process, is it is, to me, the most interesting part, in my opinion, because it, it, you're putting the puzzle together. Like when you're, you, you know, you guys know this from production from the other end of, of you know, you, the, the stuff you guys do on air, uh, the stuff that, you know, when you, when you do television and you bring back footage, those are the pieces of the puzzle. The editor ultimately gets to watch the puzzle go together and be part of putting it together. And to me, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that because it's kind of like, you know, if you build a piece of furniture or if you build a, you know, do some, well, build a room in your house, you, 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 you nail all this stuff together, you put it all together, but at the end of the day, you can sit back and, and look at it and kind of enjoy what you've done and, and get, you know, see that finished process, finished product. So that's, that's what I really wanted. And I think what people, um, you know, really should, should understand about production too is the amount of impact the you know uh, process has in it. It really does finish the, the projects. That's what I really enjoy doing. Wow. Well, at least with furniture, you don't leave the leg off of the table you've put together like in editing when they are told, <laughs> no, it's too long. Cut that out. But that's gold. Cut it out. But it's the sculpting, though. <laughs> it's the sculpting of the story, of the piece, and of the message. So that's true in that aspect. It is... Um, it can be very difficult editing, but most of the time it's worth it. Hopefully, Jim. Uh, <laughs> well, one... that, and... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that, Kelly. You're absolutely right. Sometimes, as an editor, though, you've got to cut off your favorite part of the furniture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And folks, but, that's yeah. when Jim would cry into his yeah. popcorn. Kill your darlings, <laughs> Stephen King says. I have to ask you before we go, I don't know how much time we have left, but really quickly, you love camping in the Rockies. Do you have something specific to say about that? Where and why that place? Yes, I, I have to say, uh, we're, we're, we're very lucky that we have so many beautiful, beautiful parts of the Rockies here, but we have Banff and Jasper in Alberta, which are our two main Rocky destinations. I prefer Jasper because it's a little less congested. 
a little bit. You know, fewer people, it doesn't get quite the tourism of Banff. So you get, a, I, in my opinion, you get more of the mountain experience because you can do more hiking. The town feels a little smaller. It feels more like a town in the Swiss Alps. So I'm a Jasper over Banff person, but other people would argue the opposite. And they, other people like Banff because of the really fast feel of it. Hmm. Jasper seems very underrated, uh, and I think that is because for people who don't live in the area, we're always thinking Banff first. It's like a bucket list thing. Uh, absolutely, and Banff is only uh, you know an hour and a bit from Calgary, whereas yeah. Jasper's three and a half hours from Edmonton, so mm-hmm. it's a little more, bit more convenient to go into Banff. I think people used to always push the fact that Banff used to always seem to be a place where you possibly might spot a celebrity, too. Well, never outside outside of Jim really? Crisco. Oh, yeah. He's the celebrity. Yeah, but then, uh, because of the festival in that there, right, Jim? When they yeah. do the film stuff and, you know, you'd get these celebrities that would want to go skiing and it was always, I'm going to Banff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, and even for, you know, fundraisers and stuff like that, I've, I've heard stories of, you know, when he was, uh, when he was around Robin Williams going there and, and you know, major celebrities that would would always go in just because it's such a beautiful place, too. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Jim. Thanks a lot for this. Appreciate having you on Voices. I'm looking forward to the break. I however, because I'm waiting for Dan to give Rummy a heck as if he's not doing his job giving us time cues. I don't know how much time is left. He was certainly doing. He certainly backed you up to make sure after you made the comment. <laughs> ah! <laughs> anyway, James, as usual, thank you, pal. Uh, Jim Crisco, our content development specialist. Central region. We're still scratching our head, folks. He was our guest on Voices this month. Stay tuned for this feature on the third Tuesday of the month. Up next, let's wrap up the show and see what's going on tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown over on AMI-tv. Welcome back. Romeo Movin, Kelly McDonald. This is Kelly and Company. And remember, check out the Kelly and Company podcast. You can listen to the show in its complete form, the full show with the audio vanity card slapped on the end. You can listen to the show in segment form along the Kelly and Company podcast feed. And just check out your favorite contributor, community reporter, or a guest maybe that we had on the program that you heard half an interview for. You can go back and find it, and you can share it if you want to. While you're in there, maybe give us a rating and review if you have some time. That's the Kelly and Company podcast, available from your favorite podcatcher. So we're looking at segments from today. Ramya, where do you want to start? What would you like to recommend people go back and take a listen to? I think it was really great learning about Eye on the Cure with Dr. Uh, Larissa Moniz. And the, the reason why I think it's fascinating is when she got to the point where she was telling us what the three research teams are competing for, right? Like what, what their uh, research projects are. Um, I thought it was fascinating. We're hearing a lot more about clinical trials, uh, specifically about, you know, Luxterna these days and what kind of impact it's made for um, Health Canada to approve Luxterna as a gene therapy here in Canada for an eye condition. And then hearing about what other researchers are doing, where they are in the process, and how we can support, vote, and educate ourselves based on this uh, whole 
opportunity this competition show so i think it's nice eye on the cure and if you want to check it out they are releasing it this friday so we'll give you more information by end of week matthew rochette go back check out the community report from montreal had some very interesting stuff timely again folks stuff you can participate in stuff that would really be nice to get some feedback i know you're seeing a lot of surveys and things like that come out Look, something's got to stick from some of these folks, whether you buy into them or not. I know it takes up time and they're frustrating. And I'll be the first to have to remind myself, hey, uh, remember what you said, go do that one. Um, These are really important that help move the needle forward. And we are seeing some change, but it's always nice to see and be informed. So he brought several great things. You can check them out through our blog to ami.ca slash Kelly Co. Let's welcome in Paul Daniel. He joins us at this point every day on the program uh, to tell us a little bit about the next edition of Now with Dave Brown. If you want to find their program, I'll note two folks available as a podcast. You can subscribe or catch them on AMI-tv at 9 a.m. in the morning. Good day, Paul. What's up tomorrow? Hey, hey Kelly. Uh, tomorrow's show, our columnist, Andrew Paula, will tell us about the importance and impact made by the annual day of charity known as Giving Tuesday which is a nice antidote to Black Friday and Cyber Tuesday sales. It's two two weeks away, but it's always a good time to talk about generosity. And I think lots of people would say it's a good thing it goes first. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the 29th, on the 29th, yeah, after after all that, yes. Melinda Kessanovichus, our community reporter in Halifax, will will give us the details about the CNIB's holiday party coming up, which will be in person this year, which is a nice fair change. On a more personal note, Milena will also talk about the emotional rollercoaster of getting a new guide dog. Her current guide dog, Lewis, whom we heard so much about during her time as a community reporter, is retiring. He's fine and will continue to live with the family. So, But Milena will be discussing the challenges and what's needed when, when training for a new guide dog. Interesting, too, when you think about some people just don't have the means to keep the dog, whether it's with family or mm. in their own home, because yeah. some people, you know, the space, the finances are it. So sure. it's it's a bit of a challenge. Pauly D, thanks, pal. Take care, Kelly. We'll talk to you tomorrow on the program. Paul Daniel, one of the producers over there at Now at Dave Brown, available in the morning on your TV at AMI-TV, beginning at 9 a.m. in the morning. Talk to enough people, eh, Ramya, who just, just don't have the finances, don't have the space to keep yep. another puppy. Not to mention the emotional burden of retiring your guide dog at all. Um, You know, someone you've spent so many, several years with, sometimes up to 10 years uh, working with your guide dog and then having to change, transition, wait even on Mm. hold while you get another guide dog. Lots and lots of stuff going on. How will your new dog accept that? So it'll be a good conversation when when they get into it. And we'll get into our conversation starting at 2 tomorrow. Take it easy. You too. Greg David will uh, be a part of the program tomorrow, and he's going to highlight the hottest genre on TV right now, holiday movies. You knew the answer. Ryan Delahanty brings us details on the upcoming uh, accessibility town hall in Halifax, a chance for regional municipalities to provide some updates to the disability community at that time. Also, reporter Grant Hardy, he'll be here with the latest health headlines. We'll have the Wednesday edition of The Buzz with Bill with producer Bill Shackleton. And as we've spoken about on the program, grocery shopping has become much more expensive this year. Mary Mammoliti tells us what we can do to cut down on grocery expenses. Settle in with us beginning at 2 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. I'm waving at you, ladies and gentlemen. Take care of yourselves. Be safe and good night.
So I had the wonderful privilege on the weekend, as I know most of you know, I've been involved with uh, Ontario Blind Sports. And the Ontario Blind Sports Gala, when it was formed, I remember being in on kind of the planning, just kind of being a sounding board for the gang that was putting it together, the recommendation, hey, let's try this, let's present it, let's do it. And being asked, Cal, would you MC? So I definitely took that on and felt very passionate about it because I knew so many people that were going to go in. I was a member of Ontario Blind Sports when many of these others were who excelled to great heights in sports. Anyway, I've recently decided that I, I want to take a little bit of a step back from doing some of the MC stuff because what I was missing was enjoying the evening like everybody else and being able to sit there as an audience member, not feel hurried or rushed. So I, I backed off. And Brock Richardson and I did the one in, I think it was 2019, uh, where we actually co-hosted the event as MCs. Well, I told them I, I wasn't uh, really interested in, in MCing this year, but would like to come out. But I thought Brock might be interested. And fast forward ahead, Mr. Richardson, as some of you who listened to yesterday's show know, was the MC. I was asked by AMI to present our Gord Hope Award. Gord Hope a guy I've known since I was a child, passed away uh, recently. And when Gord passed away, what a hole. And so AMI wanted to make sure we had some way of recognizing this man who was on our board and the impact he had on AMI, but an, a tremendous athlete as well. So I was very honored and pleased to be able to do it as well as host the AMI table that we as a sponsor got. However, on my way there, you know how they say, things happen on the way to the fair, right? <laughs> well, the train I was on struck a vehicle, so we sat. So, of course, I'm texting and letting people know, hey, I'm not sure I'm making it. Can someone else hand out the award for me? Anyway, once the train got moving, almost three hours later, I made it to the gala and was handed the stuff because they were running a little late. So I did get the handout to Bryce Parker, uh, the Gord Hope Award on behalf of AMI. And my apologies to Bryce for being a little underdressed. Uh, I had my polo and jeans on, but certainly uh, not the suit that I had carted along, but didn't have time to jump into. Congratulations to him. Congratulations to Ontario Blind Sports and all inductees because it was a really wonderful night. Fedora's off to Brock Richardson as a wonderful MC. And uh, always a good time and a real special time. P.S. Most importantly, nobody injured in the train car crash. It was an abandoned vehicle.